Well, welcome back to the Zeitcast, everybody. One of the things that I love getting to do with this new podcast is getting to introduce you guys to dear friends of mine who are important to me, who are important on my journey. And today is one of those days. I'm so glad to get to introduce you to Tony Caldwell, who, in addition to being my friend, and this is actually a really cool story. So I was staying, um, I guess this was what, now maybe two years ago or so? I was staying with my good friends, the Gunters, in Oxford, Mississippi, which is such a charming town where uh, Tony was at the time. And uh, Tony is a wonderful psychotherapist who's followed my work. And we, you know, we had all these, these things in common that I didn't know at the time. But basically, as I'm there, like taking some downtime and essentially just trying to write the book that's still not finished, <laughs> embarrassingly. Well, I'm hoping that was a year ago now that I say that, rather than two years ago. Um, but Tony actually volunteered uh, to spend some time with me because uh, he's the person who, in addition to being a psychotherapist, as a devout Christian, there is such a rich kind of soul care element to what he does. And those sessions that we had in Oxford were so rich, really life-changing for me, honestly. And I think like that was sort of, I feel like a lot of how I was kind of able to recalibrate post-shipwreck into a lot of, you know, the kind of the season that I'm in now. So in addition to being a good friend, he's been instrumental in my life in that way. So I wanted to set you up well, Tony, because uh, he just recently moved to Nashville, Tennessee. He's in private practice there. So I'm giving a massive plug right now. Anybody near Nashville needs to get in touch because uh, your work's so important. And what's the best way for them to, to do that if they want to reach out in terms of uh, your practice? Yeah, so I work... Um with a collective called the estuary. Uh, so the estuary.org, uh, okay. they can find me there. And then my, also my personal site is youngnashville.com, J U N G Nashville.com. Yes. I meant to say that you are a union psychotherapist and also teaches at Triveca. Tony's a wonderful writer, uh, and speaker. So, uh, would highly encourage you to check out his work in that regard. I know you've written a lot of things for red letter Christians, whom I'm also filled with just, you know, does tremendous work. Uh, and Tony does, does just a lot of important things. I definitely, before we're done today, uh, want to talk about some of the stuff that you've done recently at the border in terms of working with kids that have been traumatized there. But today in general, after all this setup, um, I really want to talk about mental health and suicide and maybe especially as it relates to the church. I think a lot of us are still reeling and kind of metabolizing the death of Jared Wilson, who I, I didn't know super well, but definitely was a, was a friend. Uh, we certainly knew each other. And um, so I think that's definitely so heavy on my heart and on the hearts of a lot of people who listen. Uh, but Tony is somebody who is a, a devout believer and who works in the field of mental health. Maybe this would be a good place to start. What's your experience in terms of specific mental health and the church? Like is... Um, Faith slash uh, church for most people, is that an asset? Is having a faith community helpful in these conversations? Or is that often more of a hindrance when it comes to people really dealing with mental health issues? Yeah, so that can definitely go either way. Uh, a faith community that you're compatible with that can actually go there with you and that is willing to sort of contain uh, what you're going through to be a container for you and that they they're willing 
and able to hold um, space for you. Um, that that's absolutely invaluable, but, um, a a faith community that can't hold that could uh, be damaging, even if they're, uh, full of good intentions. Mm. So, um, I would say discernment on the part of the person who's suffering is of utmost importance because, uh, you're literally picking and choosing who you will spiritually and emotionally undress in front of. Mm. And that's, uh, it's very important that that not be with the wrong person or the wrong group. Yeah. That makes so much sense. Um, do you, do you think depression sometimes carries a unique kind of social stigma within the church or at least within some churches? Yeah, I would say, you know, depression and anxiety being two of the most common things that we, every human uh, experiences at some point. Um, I think that the fact that they are so common helps us have some language uh, around that and some, and, and some dialogue around that. But I also think it's easy to brush those things off mm. as co- so common that maybe you should just buck up or man up or push through and that sort of thing. Mm. And so I think we, we've on the negative end, we've constructed a lot of unhelpful narratives around uh, some of the more common forms of suffering. Uh, but I think if in certain circles or in certain congregations, in, in my experience, there's a tendency to see suffering as some kind of moral failure mm. or sin based. That's just absolutely not always the case. Yeah. Um, I mean, sometimes there is, um, you know, a certain amount of anxiety that comes with some um, behavior or pattern or pathology we're dealing with that we know is based in our own poor decision-making or something like that. But, uh, but to say that all suffering is rude in that, it's just very misguided and very harmful, mm-hmm. very shaming. And I do see that happen a lot in some religious circles, but honestly, it happens even in secular circles. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a tendency to, especially among, among men to avoid addressing suffering, um, in a lot of typical, um, toxic, masculine types of ways, which is to change the conversation, shut it down, shame the person who's opening up, you know, try to keep conversations in a, in a, in a very shallow range, you know, sports and the weather and things that where you just don't go very deep. And uh, so, so a lot of that, you know, those are basically defense mechanisms. Those are all ways of avoiding Mm. Um, and so, you know, even things like bullying are rooted in that. If, a, if there's someone experiencing something and trying to share it and you just can't go there because you haven't done your own work or you don't know your own depths or you avoid your own depths, then, then I think that's a lot of what we see going on in the culture, uh, is, uh, avoiding other people's pain because we don't know how to deal with our own. Mm. Uh, so Jung says that, um, the best way to know another person's darkness is to be in touch with our own. Wow, you know, yeah. that there's a, there's a certain type of communion that can happen uh, in the depths. If both people are in tune and with or in touch with uh, their depths. Oh, that's so good. I love that quote. And um, you know, I know like from, and it makes sense by the way that like um, that there are just sort of different forms of the stick. There's kind of maybe an equal form of the stigma. Uh, that's one that's, sacred one that's secular um 
But I tell you, I do find it especially interesting because I, I feel like what's unique sometimes within church circles is because, you know, I'm this person who, uh, especially at this point in my life, I feel like I have so many conversations with pastors and clergy across different traditions. And I'm such an advocate for, like, I want every pastor in the world to have a therapist. Like, I, I, really, I want every, every Christian to have a therapist. Really, I want every person to have a therapist, you know? <laughs> but but certainly like, you know, for clergy and all that. But it's interesting how often and I have, you know, growing up in the, the way that I did for all things that are wonderful about it. I have heard it said many a time in a sermon, you know, you don't need a therapist. You just need to talk to Dr. Jesus kind of idea. Like wh- where do you think that comes from? This idea that if you're a person of faith. Uh, that, that that having a relationship with God should somehow fix any and all challenges with regards to depression, anxiety, anything around mental health. Yeah, I think that's avoidance. Um, if someone's conscious while they're saying something like that, I think it's rooted in avoidance. But I think a lot of it's unconscious. Uh, I think that uh, a lot of our theologies are just um, honestly, just rooted in our own ignorance. Mm. And I think we have a lot of ignorance around uh, the things that we consider dark, you know, the dark emotions, and because we just don't have a whole lot of experience of going there. So that's that's why writers like Henry Nowen mm. are, are so incredibly important, because you can read Nowen and you know that he knows his version of what you're going through. That's right. Um, yeah, so... Uh, you know, I've seen over the past 20 years, uh, you know, the Christianity as a whole opening up more and more to counseling and mental health and mm-hmm. forming mental health alliances and, um, um, you know, treatment collectives within churches and, and outreach programs and things like that. I do think sometimes, though, that some of those um, some of those interventions can be harmful. Mm. You know, I mean, there's still conversion therapies out there and uh, yes. and there's still, uh, you know, a lot of Christian counseling that is uh, is very shaming, mm-hmm. you know, like everything, everything has a verse, you know. So in the in the medical world, there's there's appeal for everything. Yeah. And, and in the religious world, if you end up in the wrong situation, there's a scripture for everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, those those are obviously helpful to some degree, but to, to see either one of those as a, as a sort of a fix all or a cure all is just uh, not, even if it's well-intended, it's extremely harmful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, Tony, like I, I so try to avoid generalizations because as you say, like, I mean, I certainly think, you know, where people are, where they love God and love people and are well-meaning, you know, I know any and all kind of folks can be used, but because of bad personal experiences I've had and the friends had, I'm so leery of, I call it Sunday school counseling is what it feels like. That's sort of like, you know, everything is, is Bible verses. I remember specifically actually, and I think at some point if she's comfortable, um, the therapist I had back in Charlotte for a number of years, actually really in my whole shipwreck season, Dr. Goodman was amazing. I'd love to have her on the show at some point, but I remember specifically, uh, because I had seen, Folks like that. And I don't know if I've ever even talked about this publicly. I don't, I, I, I kind of hate to do that in a way, but I, I think I can do it discreetly. I, I remember seeing one Christian counselor in particular who was just very much that way. And it wasn't a bad guy, but it was kind of like, 
handful of Bible verses, everything stayed kind of surface level. If you have faith, if you have, if you, if you believe, and interestingly enough, a little before that season in my life, I was still seeing this person on a somewhat regular basis. And I just remember, I remember when I, when I really was becoming conscious of the things I was dealing with, I was like outright, I wasn't looking for someone to not be a, a, a Christian. In fact, you know, the therapist that I saw, she's a PhD uh, Episcopalian, but I was kind of going out of my way to avoid anything like that because I just knew my experience was, I felt like I knew I wasn't bringing all of me in the room. And I didn't even know why I didn't feel comfortable bringing all of me in the room. I don't think even then I would have even known uh, why I would have felt so uncomfortable. So, so maybe I'll phrase the question this way, especially people in faith communities and looking for some kind of help. How do people know the difference? You know, what are, what, what are sort of the markers? Like, how do you know, how do you find somebody who's legit, especially because I do know you take the soul care aspect very seriously. So people who do want soul care, but don't want the, you know, take two Bible verses and glass of water and call me in the morning. Like, you know, what do you, what do you look for or not look for? Yeah. Yeah. There, there definitely needs to be a, a vetting process. When you're looking for a therapist, you're, you're looking for basically an, an intimate partner in a very real way. Uh, and you don't need, uh, you know, when, while you're suffering, especially you don't need another bad experience. Yeah. Um, so a lot of times people call me and they say, are you a Christian counselor? And I'll say, well, first tell me what you mean by Christian counselor or what you're looking for, because that's usually pretty loaded. There's certain expectations to do a certain thing a certain way. And so I always uh, make it clear that I'm a Christian and a counselor, but I'm not a Christian counselor. I don't market myself that way mm -hmm. because I don't want to, uh, to one, be held within a certain uh, range of what I'm able to do. Yeah. And, uh, and two, I don't want to uh, set someone else up to have certain expectations and, and, uh, be disappointed. Mm. Uh, so I think asking a lot of questions on the front end, uh, is okay. Um, there's, there's a tendency to when you're going to someone for help to be somewhat, uh, submissive or passive sometimes, uh, you're looking, you're going to the other person for guidance, right? So, yeah. um, but I think to come in with the confidence um, that um, and sometimes this is hard to muster when you're in a really dark place, but uh, with the confidence that that you matter uh, enough that the person that you're going to um, to help you isn't just a leader. They're, they're in a lot of ways you're equal mm -hmm. and uh, but they need to be safe. Mm -hmm. uh, that's why I'm uh, I'm always. Um, you know, sure to, to make, to let people know that I'm affirming that I'm LGBTQ friendly as a therapist, because I've seen so many people uh, hurt by supposedly open therapists, the way they're hurt by supposedly open churches, mm. you know, where there's a vagueness there or someone has their own internal bias or their own um, line that um, they're not forthcoming about. Um, and, and I've just seen a lot of people hurt. In, in those ways. Um, so, um, yeah, I would say the, the best, the best thing you can do when you're seeking a therapist is to make sure that it's the perfect fit or, you know, mm. there's no perfect fit because it's a human relationship, but mm. to, to really shop around and make sure that you have, um, someone that you, that can go there with you in a way that feels right for you before yeah. you make the investment of five or 10 or 20, 
sessions, you know, mm-hmm. um, like to, to make sure that, uh, that it's, it's the best place, um, for you spiritually. So I'd say also be in prayer and discernment about that. Um, mm-hmm. you know, where can you, uh, completely, um, access your, your most painful places. And if you can't do that, you're in the wrong place. If, yeah. if the relationship you're in therapeutically doesn't allow that or is uncomfortable for you mm-hmm. in that way, I mean, there may be, we come with our own resistances and uh, mm-hmm. would have to face that discomfort anywhere. Mm-hmm. But if, you're, if your soul knows that you can't fully go there, then you're probably going to just have another uh, at best pleasant and at worst harmful experience. Yeah. And you can have that for free with family yeah, <laughs> or, or friends, you know? Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's well, said. well, cause it's like, I feel like when you're entering that room, you're carrying all these internalized expectations already where there are people who need your life to come out a certain way. And then if you realize that your therapist needs your life to come out a particular way, if they're looking for a particular outcome and that outcome has already been predetermined before you walk in the room, they've already decided whether or not uh, your, your, your marriage is going to work. They've already decided the kind of person or the kind of Christian you're supposed to be, what life choices you're supposed to make. Then all of a sudden, th- th- this is just another, instead of being a place where there's a kind of sanctuary in the presence of God and this person, a kind of holy space, uh, to deal with these issues. It's, it's just another source of pressure. Absolutely. Yeah. It should be a place where, uh, you, every single part of you that, uh, you're ashamed of, uh, unaware of, uh, uncomfortable with can come to the surface, come out, enter the room and, uh, and be taken care of, not judged, humiliated, shamed, shut down, um, and you're right. Expectations uh, can do that in, in a way that really nothing else can. Mm. And we're so used to performing and uh, staying in sort of a persona, you know, especially in, in uh, religious settings. We tend to put on our best face and speak a certain language and, you know, follow the unspoken guidelines and sometimes the spoken guidelines. But if you're having to do that in a therapeutic situation, I would say mm. get out. Yeah. find find a situation where you don't have to do that because uh, really, you know, therapy should be shadow work. It should mm. be where we're able to do some shadow boxing and, and, and access parts of ourselves that we typically aren't in touch with mm-hmm. or, or able to express. And, uh, you know, if we could do that in the collective, there, there would be no need for therapy, yeah, <laughs> but, sure. but the fact is we can't. And so, we tend to practice our persona and and the word persona means mask, Mm -hmm. you know, so we tend to practice our social mask to the point that even we are out of, out of touch with our deeper selves. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, yeah, a a therapeutic uh, situation would be one in which not only, um, not only do you not have to stay in persona, but you're encouraged not to stay in persona. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just thinking for a lot of people who are listening right now, even how difficult some of these ideas might be to grasp when you've still got this idea. Um, I don't know, like there, I mean, other people can be the source of so much shame, but when you have this, when you're carrying so much shame within yourself, I just think there are a lot of, 
folks for whom it still is kind of unimaginable to the idea of talking about what's really in the depths without, without shame. And, uh, and just how, you know, I, I, remember, I remember how revolutionary that was for me for the first time to come into a space where I felt like, okay, I can really talk about anything and not be judged. I feel like so many people just go most of their lives and, or, and, and like never have that experience. And especially inside the context of the church, which is so tragic for me, because it actually seems like for the, as people of God, as people of faith, we should be more likely to have that experience as any, than anybody else. And it's, it sometimes seems like we're less likely to have it. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, most of us carry trauma. Mm. And, and when trauma is broadly defined as it should be, um, there, there's a lot that each individual goes through that's traumatic. And one of those can be just the pressure to not be who you really are. Mm. That's pretty traumatic. That's spiritual trauma. And, uh, you know, if you add on top of that, the religious trauma of yeah. theologies that, that, um, add to that, um, initial spiritual trauma, then, then, you know, most of us are under several layers of, uh, unintentional for the most part, religious abuse, mm. you know? So I, I sometimes, um, compare that to domestic violence, mm. uh, domestic violence, um, sometimes is it intentional in that a person knows they need to get better and stop harming the people in the house. But a lot yeah. of times people um, are being abusive, even though they don't intend to be, they uh, it's, it's their own, uh, it's their own wounding or their own um, trauma. They're aware of aim, keeping them from getting the help they need. So they keep being toxic to other people. Yeah. And I think we, you know, we do that in religious circles as well, just on a, on a, on a bigger scale. But if you take a congregation and think of it as a family, mm. you know, then there's, there's uh, definitely some verbal abuse going on there. Mm. Usually. Uh, I mean, I, I even think down to, uh, I don't want to get too far off topic, but um, in each congregation, statistically speaking, if you just look at the numbers in each congregation, there's a child sitting there that's actively being sexually abused mm. and they're probably sitting next to the person who's doing it mm. because that's usually happening within families or communities, trusted people, you know, it's, yeah. it's mostly not strangers. Yeah. Um, so um, the fact that, um, that our sanctuaries aren't sanctuaries for those children is um, part of that problem. Yeah. Uh, so, so I think the fact that we avoid speaking about so many things mm -hmm. in the church, things like sexual abuse, where, you know, if, if we start talking about sexual ethics, it's about promiscuity or homosexuality or something like that. And not about sexual abuse, which is obviously the thing there that is uh, a huge violation of a vulnerable mm. uh, individual. So uh, I think, there's just so many ways that our congregations can be abusive and not know it, not be aware of yeah. it and acting out of our own trauma and our own socialization and our own, uh, wounding and our own, you know, we, we, we pass on our, our theologies just like we yes. pass on our recipes, you know? Yeah, sure. So, uh, yeah. And, uh, I, I think a lot of that does happen. There's so many people that I work with that are harmed by a blanket statement made by a pastor. Mm. who probably had no intention of hurting them, had yeah. no idea what was going on with that person internally or how they were processing what was being said. Yeah. But uh, 
but yeah, um, there, it happens very often, uh, where someone's pre-existing shame or trauma gets triggered by the, by the leader or, um, some discussion within the group. And, you know, there's, there's many of us struggling with our theologies and our sexualities and all these other aspects of ourselves. And when we hear the people in our circle talk about mm-hmm. those people, mm-hmm. like, let's say, say I'm in a congregation and I'm in the closet, you know, and I hear the people in the congregation talking about those people, but they don't realize they're talking about me as well because I yeah. am one of those people. Um, then uh, there's so much abuse and trauma happening that's probably unintentional based in ignorance and based in not, um, not being aware that uh, everything that a human is uh, capable of experiencing is probably happening inside the people right around you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is so real time for me right now because when you talk about religious abuse and religious trauma, you know, I don't, I feel like my vocabulary is sort of expanding in that way right now. And maybe that's really just a way of saying I'm feeling permission to use words like that, where I wouldn't have felt permission before, mm-hmm. which I actually find kind of scary. You know, it's, I find it mm-hmm. kind of scary to, to name some things in that direction. Um, and I don't feel like I'm, a sensitive millennial one, because I'm too old to be a millennial. <laughs> so there's that. <laughs> yeah. I don't, th- I don't think I'm, it's not, not about being all sensitive or whatever, but man, I just feel like now the closer I investigate some of the kinds of theological claims that I hear, you know, um, when people grow up in a context, for example, where there's just this, this constant threat of eternal conscious torment, constant threat of, Rapture, I, you know, with the conversation you're, you know, that you're the question you raise in terms of um, people in the church struggling to come out. I, you know, I think it, it was through the conversations I had with so many young people that largely changed me there when I realized, like, okay, like lives are at stake here. Like, people, how how common it is that people end up committing suicide. Mm-hmm. Because they're in a they're in a religious context where the messaging that they hear, like I don't know, it's just it's it's just still relatively new though for me to be able to name some of that as religious abuse or trauma. And I'm imagining for a lot of people listening, yeah, it, there there is a there is a struggle to discern that because it's like especially when and this is the, I didn't mean to go into any of this, but I think this is the thing that's especially confusing, right? What if you had a radical conversion experience where you really had an encounter? with Jesus that brought liberation in one area of your life, or you experienced real care from that community and you've experienced goodness there. I think mm-hmm. especially, you know, but, but which the family analogy, I guess, makes a lot of sense of that, how that happens like with a family. But then I think precisely because there can be real encounters with things that are good and that are holy, it can be really hard then to discern some things that are actually harmful and toxic that come at the hands of the same community or the same leader. Absolutely. You know, and, uh, you know, the best language I've found for that is, is something Jen Hatmaker said at Wild Goose a couple of years ago was uh, when you start naming things, the price is belonging mm. because, you know, you, you're definitely going to feel the, the feeling of not fully belonging to the tribe anymore. Yeah. If you bring up something difficult like that. Um, 
and you know, on the other hand, um, every person on the receiving end of abuse in a system where they're not the parent or the leader always feels that way. Uh, if I speak out about what happened to me, then I'm the one wearing the scarlet letter. Yeah. You know, I'm the one who uh, who's going to face a lot of social consequence for being honest. And mm-hmm. and yeah, you're right. The uh, that's why I like the family analogy. You know, when people come in to therapy and they're really talking about everything bad that happened with with the parent, maybe um, I say, well, you know, who were the people that were helpful and constructive and loving. And it turns out it's usually the same exact person, Mm. you know, that all the good and the bad uh, was coming from the same parent, Mm. you know, and and it is very confusing. And so, um, you know, a lot of, I think a lot of people leave uh, the uh, congregation that wounded them and a lot of times for good reason, but also feel somewhat homeless or adrift yeah. Um, and, and don't feel fully at home in their new situation. I mean, I know a lot of people who, uh, who left, uh, their evangelical background after coming out who, um, you know, started going to an Episcopalian church or, um, some other affirming church, um, uh, that felt at home because they were embraced there for all of who they are, but also felt, uh, like, um, culture clash. Mm. You know, that it felt very different. Mm. Um, and that, that matters, you know, yeah. that, that when you feel sort of like half of you is where you used to be and half of you is where you are now and you still feel divided. Mm. You know, I think that's a common occurrence. Um, I'm actually going to be out at, uh, evolving faith in a, in a few weeks. Um, I'll be set up there in a room and, and have a sign up sheet to offer, um, you know, like 30 minute sessions with people who, you know, get, um, I don't like the word triggered because it's become so misused at this point to sort of bash people like, Oh, sure. you're just being sensitive. It's the new sensitive in that right, way. Right. But for people who, uh, I like the word constellated, uh, because it mm. means, you know, there's all these fragments of past hurts that all sort of clump together yeah. in this way. That's very much, um, experiences acute pain, yeah. you know? And, and, and I saw that happen last year at evolving faith. A lot of people, you know, the the conversations you're not supposed to have are being had and, mm-hmm. and all that pain comes up mm-hmm. and that's, that's a beautiful thing. It's just extremely painful. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. So, but, uh, if you don't mind, I'll read you something real quick. And I actually, I woke up at like three o'clock this morning. I guess I was thinking about talking to you today and I, I wrote mm-hmm. something down. Yeah, please. But it goes along with what you were saying. And, uh, and, you know, it kind of ties into one of my own experiences of, mm-hmm. of, of naming, um, abuse. I started to post it earlier today and I thought, yeah, I really don't need to be distracted at work by, Mm. you know, being so vulnerable, uh, out on the internet. But, uh, so here's what I wrote. Uh, many of us were taught as children that God was divine Santa with a mood disorder Mm. because, because this hits a child at a particularly critical time developmentally, many of us grow into adults that still suffer from conscious or unconscious fear and ambivalence towards the divine. It's impossible to love and attach to a figure that will flip a switch and go from coddling you to torturing you while telling you that you made them do it. Mm. This is religious abuse, and it causes us to compartmentalize our inner knowing in order to stay safe or to, quote, be good or belong to the collective. The good and the bad news is we have to take responsibility for our own 
things. Our childlike faith was wounded and replaced by a childish faith. Part of claiming our adult faith is reclaiming our childlike faith, transcending the childish faith. And that's being able to trust and relax again after being traumatized by the toxic and stunted religion that we had internalized. So it's not of us. It's part of our socialization Mm. uh, that we have to let go of. Um, I knew God when I was six years old, but then adults and authority, including the church camp counselor that physically assaulted me while telling me that I, quote, made him do it, told me who God, quote, really is and that I must believe in this way so that God wouldn't burn me alive while telling me that I made him do it. Mm. It was at this point that I first recall being spiritually molested. Mm. So I take it even further than abuse and call it molestation because, you know, technically in legal language, that means that you're tampering with another person Mm. in a way that alters their lives. Yeah. Right. And it it, it puts uh, emphasis on the fact that it's, it's a violation that's comprehensive. It's not just emotional or mental uh, mm-hmm. or physical or psychological. You, you could just put all of that as spiritual in that it's comprehensive. It, it affects every part of a person's life. It affects the choices we make. It affects uh, the way we think and the way we feel. It completely alters our trajectory in life. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I've, I've become really comfortable with, with naming that. Just yeah. because it's uh, not to hate on anyone or to, to be negative or to cause a fuss or anything like that. But uh, I think healing starts with just telling the truth, yes. you know, and sometimes um, what was literally caught, what could literally be caught with a video camera and what our internal experience of something was wouldn't be the same thing. Yeah. But what we experienced really, really, really matters. Yeah. And so if yes. we try to rationalize, mm. uh, we're still not going to get to the depth of what ails us, you know? And so I, I really, really, really advise against shallow conversations around our wounding because mm. especially, uh, especially, uh, shallow, um, religious conversations, because I, I don't know about you, but I find that the spiritual sharks are in the shallow end. Yeah, that's the truth. Good Lord. Yeah, and you can get eaten alive. There's a feeding frenzy that happens when you say and do the wrong thing about your own suffering. And usually the wrong thing is the right thing. It's just the collective can't hold it. They can't contain it. And that's That's why uh, you need a safe space to be able to do that. And that's usually with a third party. Mm -hmm. So like you said, someone who's not invested in outcome. That's so good, Tony. And I yeah. thank you for being so vulnerable to share your own story in that way. I think like, um, you know, we're just, it's funny how I feel, I feel like we can still be so naive to think that I'm so naive to think, because I can look back at experiences I had around that age, how much that were, weren't precisely the same, but the things that I internalized, the messages I heard, how that very much set the agenda for my entire life. I mean, I think even in terms of my own search for the unconditional love of God. And in terms of negatively kind of things, I sort of had to blow up and then putting things back together. But how much all those questions, there was a frame that was established then that yes. set the agenda for my life. And you can't yes. escape that, you know, yeah, <laughs> you don't you, just get to flip a switch and decide. Yeah, you can't undo that. Um, everything after that is, uh, you know, I say the, the initial wiring that we get uh, around that age is, uh, we're like clay. We can yeah. be molded. After that, everything is is sculpting. Mm. You have to chip away at mm-hmm. at what what has uh, been 
hardened at that point. Yeah. So every narrative after the initial narrative is, is a, you know, it's a layer. It's always a layer over the initial narrative. It's always there. You never get rid of it. I mean, it's just in your consciousness. You know, some of us carry it in our bodies, you know, depending on what, what the wound or the trauma was. And most uh, stress and trauma and all that is carried in our bodies. Yeah. And, uh, and so it is a comprehensive wounding. You know, I say, I call it a psychic wound as in it wounds your psyche, which includes Mm. uh, thought, feeling, emotion, the physical self. Um, And so it, it is very much comprehensive and therefore spiritual for me uh, when, when someone's uh, struggling with, with wounding like that, because it is, it very much becomes part of our identity. Right. Yeah. Tony, there's so much more I want to talk to you about, so I don't want to linger too long here, but I'm just, um, this whole thing of religious abuse and trauma, how, for, since people may not have had that language before or know how to recognize it, what are markers of a person who may have undergone this kind of trauma? You know, yeah. what are things to kind of sign or, or even for people around us? What are signs to look for, you know, b- because we're not always aware in ourselves or others of specifically religious abuse or trauma? Right. Well, you know, when I when I look back at, at my own experience, I realized that, you know, there's the, the word colonized is being used a lot now to talk about how, um, you know, people of color have been colonized by you know white people historically and still currently and uh you know if you take that down into the soul level i think what happened in in that particular moment for me uh is is when i started crying at during during this whole time it was taken as a conversion experience that oh god was entering Mm -hmm. my heart and all this and i'll say no that's not what it is and i remember Mm -hmm. one of the counselors saying well what do you expect fireworks and I said, well, yeah, you know, if the, if, if the God of the universe is piercing your heart, I do expect fireworks, you know? Mm. So later on in life, when that did happen, there, there were fireworks, you wow. know? Uh, but um, I think when someone is narrating your experience for you, that's a huge marker. Ooh. And that, that happens a lot um, in, uh, in group. I keep being. going, but that's so good. When someone is narrating your experience for yeah. you, that's really good. Yeah, because then you have to compartmentalize your own experience, your own yeah. deepest experience. And so, in essence, you're putting God in a box inside of mm. you because the people around you won't let that bloom. Mm. Um, and, uh, man, children are so brilliant. Uh, mm. You know, children are so connected to God, and, but they're being told what that needs to look like. And so, anyway, looking back, um, I realized that my in my experience, my soul had been colonized. Mm. My, my soul was the mission field, uh, you know, and, uh, I got colonized, you know, I was told, you know, um, all about basically white Jesus and, uh, Mm. not the, the native Jesus in my heart, you know, the, the Brown colonized Jesus is the one I, um, tracking with now. And that's who I was Mm. tracking with when I was six. But, uh, but well-intentioned uh, colonists mm. came in and uh, and marked that territory and claimed it as their own uh, in the name of Jesus. Intuitively, that is the Jesus people know. I, be- I believe that. Intuitively, that's the Jesus kids know. I see it over and over again. Kids know that Jesus. Yep. Um, it, before they're 
before they're colonized. But man, I'm telling you, I, I will mull on this for a long time. This idea that it's not for someone else to tell you the meaning of your own story. And healthy authority will not do that. Healthy authority will not try to tell you what your story means. They will let you figure it out. They will give you the resources and tools, maybe, to help you discern your own story, but they won't try to tell you what your story means. That's just, right. that, that just feels really crucial to me. Right. And, and I, I would add that after we've had that experience, we're, we're like a lot of people. Uh, so sometimes after certain traumas, people will engage in behaviors that reenact the trauma. Mm. Right. And so with religious abuse, a lot of times we can keep going back, looking for a corrective experience with a leader yeah. and set them up for things they don't even know they're dealing with. You know, where yeah. there's, we're bringing our own needs to a leader and our own need to uh, to be led in some way. You know, it's uh, you know, sometimes you hear language like so and so is looking for a dad or looking for a mom or, mm. you know, or you'll see someone acting sexually in a way that's reenacting early trauma or something. And. And I think we, we do that a lot in religious circles and don't realize it. So I think mm -hmm. bringing awareness to that and, and taking ownership of our wound is sort of the philosophy of I didn't break it, but I have to fix it. Wow. You know, yeah. and, and taking care of our own wounds because, uh, man, I know in, in, in my history and in a lot of people I know, you can, you can become re-traumatized trying to have this corrective experience that looks and feels a lot like the original wounding, but works Ooh. out this time. Yes. It can be a lot like choosing an abusive partner three or four yeah. times in a row. Yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's very much the same dynamic. So uh, it is the same dynamics. I've never even seen it that clearly, but I don't know why I've never thought about it that way because I've seen it in relationships a thousand times, you know, the way that you, 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 you essentially go to the same person four or five, six times. They're just different iterations of the same person. How you do that with faith communities and with faith leaders, if you've been through religious abuse and trauma for understandable reasons that you keep reenacting. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so the, the part of the work I think for each of us is to trust our own deepest experience. And if yeah. we have internalized the message that we're not supposed to do that, then we're perpetuating the trauma. Yeah. And so if we have a list of perpetrators, our name is on the list at that point, And we have to find out, figure out how to get our name off that list. And yes. Uh, yes. that's, you know, um, trusting our own deepest experience. I mean, that's the thing that was um, not allowed in the first place. And in, in, in some way we may still be avoiding that task. Right. And that, that, you know, usually the trauma points to what the work is, you know, mm -hmm. and, and uh, for our own growth. And, and a lot of times it's that uh, trusting our own deepest experience of God and mm. um, and finding ways to uh, to be able to bloom into who we were born to be anyway. Yes. So that's yeah. that's a big thing for me is, is blooming anyway, because for all of us, you know, if we're going to bloom into who God would have us be, it's going to be that we bloomed anyway. Because yeah. something's happened along the way for each of us. Mm. Yeah. Trusting our own deepest experience of God. It, I mm -hmm. just think that's so huge. I think it's a, you know, I, I try not to use the word biblical, but I think in terms of the narratives of scripture, I think that bears out that, that, that that's the faith that we've been given. That's the faith that the church gives us is that mm -hmm. the resources to trust our deepest experience of God. And I just, but I just, I see that difference so much so clearly now how often, again, often well-intentioned, but how faith leaders, instead of telling people, trust your own deepest experience of God, say, trust me, <laughs> trust me. Those right. are two very different messages. Trust me versus trust your own deepest experience of God. There, I, I, 
talking about trauma, I definitely want to talk about your experience at the border recently. But before we get there, just even in this broader conversation around depression and mental health in the church, I, I want to at least touch on suicide. Uh, again, on a lot of our minds right now, there's so much theological baggage around it for those of us who are Christians. I'll just drive by real quick to just, just clear this for a second. This whole idea that uh, if someone commits suicide, that somehow they're automatically consigned to hell is so destructive, so damaging. So I think that, that right out of the gate just uh, <laughs> sets people back so far in this conversation is that there's automatically these assumptions that so, to me, are so antithetical to God and gospel and Jesus. But um, can you talk just for a minute about uh, about suicide and specifically maybe in such a way for people who are people of faith, but but struggling with their own kind of thoughts and tendencies in that direction as to how they might even begin to to process some of those things? Yeah. So so in my opinion, I'm, I'm sort of taking off the clinical hat. In, in my opinion, that's what uh, that's one of the ways that um, religious abuse plays out. You know, someone mm. um, d- dies uh, by suicide and we all get really constellated around our fear of uh, hell. Yeah. And, and um, you know, I, I think that's uh, that's what collective trauma looks like. So, mm. um, you know, J- Jared Wilson passed uh, not long ago and, uh, you know, for a short time, he co-pastored at home church with, with my friend, Jason McAnally. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I'll, I'm preaching there this Sunday on this topic mm. because a lot of people are hurting, you know, this mm. is their former pastor, uh, there. And, uh, you know, that's one of the things that I, I want to tackle in a very gentle way is that, um, a wounding, like a loss of someone, uh, in leadership, by suicide, um, triggers all of our own wounds and all of our own, uh, needs. Uh, but also, some of what we've dealt with culturally. Yeah. And, um, and so, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of people posting things around, um, comfort, maybe like they got from Greg Laurie's sermon about, you know, this suicide does not result in hell. And the fact that people need so much assurance around that speaks to a deep wounding. Yes. To me. Yes. Um, and, and so there's a, there's a, there's a double tragedy, but in a way, the the tragedy of, of Jared's death can help open up that conversation and hopefully liberate people from some of that, because that that stuff doesn't get um, triggered or uh, woken uh, if it's not already there. Yeah, you know, so so that's already there. Um, I just think you know we tend to uh, we tend to moralize suicide in such a way that uh it's impossible to talk about it shuts the conversation down on the front end right um so um yeah i I would say that whatever whatever it is that wakes up in you in response to someone's suicide is part of your work is telling you part of what your your wounding or your need uh or your um you know, where, where the health and the, uh, wholeness are like, yeah. cause you know, we, it's, it's our wholeness that gets wounded. Right. Yes, yes. So I think we forget that sometimes that when we're experiencing pain, that's our wholeness telling us that something's wrong. Right. Yeah. And it's usually something that doesn't belong to us. It's something we've internalized. Yes. 
And, uh, and, and a lot of that internalization is what leads to suicide in the first place. Mm. Um, so yeah, we can never know another person's suffering really exactly what they're going through yeah. uh, when they commit suicide. But I can guarantee you that there's always, because there's this exists in all of us, some things in them that don't belong there. Yeah. Some messages that have turned into thoughts and feelings that don't belong there to the point that it's made them extremely uh, um, ill in clinical words, but it, that they suffer so deeply that to escape those thoughts and feelings feels like release. Yes. Yeah. And, um, and so I would say the things I don't want to be irresponsible here. So please hear me speaking symbolically. I'm definitely not saying trying to promote suicide in any way. But feeling suicidal is proof that something indeed does need to die. Mm. It's just not the person. It's yeah. the thing that's killing the person that needs to die. But then yeah. when, you, when you get in there, you know how sometimes you think you're angry and when you get down in there, it's really sadness and grief. Yeah. You know, like that's part of the work. And then also I think when we get down in there and we, we find out what it is that we do need to kill so, so that we can live, we find out we actually don't need to kill it. We need to embrace it yes, and take care of it. And so learning to take care of our own pain, because for some of us, you know, trusting our own deepest experience when we're in a really bad place means we're trusting our pain. Right. Because that is our deepest experience. Right. And I think that's where people generally are when they, when they commit suicide. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, trusting our own deepest experience of God um, not our own deepest experience of pain. And sometimes it's, it's just impossible to do. So we need, uh, we do need community. We do need support, but we need communities that are deep enough to handle this and tackle this and address this before it happens. Yes. Yes. And not that we can stop it every time, but, uh, we can definitely make sure that we, uh, we are sanctuaries for one another. We can, uh, we can be vulnerable to set the stage and give permission for other people to join us because there's so many times we ask a suicidal person or a depressed person to open up, but we didn't do it first and invite them into it. Yeah. You know, and that's what it means to hold space and to contain someone is to, uh, to, you know, draw the bath and get in and say, come on in the water's fine. You know, Mm. so we don't ask someone to do what we're not willing to, to you know do ourselves or beat right. them to right um yeah Oof, that's so helpful tony thank you and i think um i'm going to be dwelling for a while too just in this notion that not to overly simplify but how stark it can be this sense of that people can feel like something with it. instead of something within them dying well then then i need to die no like like there there's nothing there's nothing worth that and i don't know i just think that again that the stakes that that places on faith communities to communicate that you know that there's not man because i just think again religious pressure in particular i've just seen it happen so many times that right. the way those things get internalized in a way that does that is used in a way that does feel satanic to me that feels demonic to me and a way to make people feel like, you know, there's so much pressure from their own community to be a certain way that they see just no other way out. Um, I know you, Tony, you're going to have to go because part of what's awesome since you are a practicing therapist is that you're taking time out of your busy day and your practice to be able to be with us, which I so appreciate. And I, I hate to drive by this because I think it's so important, but I would love at least for you to say a little bit about 
the experience you had a few weeks ago of being brought in by a child advocacy organization to the border and actually working with kids um, who, who've been traumatized there. Can can you say a bit about your about your experience and what that was like and what you what you saw, what you felt, what you heard? Yeah, so I, I was brought in to to be the mental health coordinator uh, after the ICE raids in Mississippi, and uh, man, it's the, the 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 best way I know to describe it is the the situation as a whole looked just like what people refer to as a, an act of God when mm. there's this comprehensive just devastation, you know. But this was very much not an act of God; it was an act of man. Mm. But it had the same consequence as something like a hurricane, you know, where everything um, was wiped away, all, all sense of meaning and purpose and direction mm. and structure and normalcy. Uh, so you have um, the first day of school and both parents in each household were arrested and taken down to Louisiana to, to ice um, holding facilities. And the kids uh, get home from school and there are no parents there. Mm. It's literally like a, a literalization of something like left behind, you know, mm. so extremely traumatic for these children to come home and their parents are gone. And uh, for most of these children, they're they're bilingual and they're legal and their parents are not bilingual or legal. Mm. And so it leaves them in an extremely vulnerable position. Um, and so um, at a certain point, one parent from each household is released to come back. But now you have. Uh, two parent households that are one parent households, two income households that are zero income households. Mm. The kids are trying to go back to school and get into some kind of rhythm, but all their classmates have seen all the footage on CNN. And so now mm. they're making fun of them and mocking them. And, you know, um, so they end up leaving school. There's some kids who are hiding out and Frank style in their mm. house, you know, like, in a back room somewhere, they're afraid to come out, you know, they're, you know, hide, a lot of people hiding. Um, and so there's just comprehensive loss. Uh, the, the children, so I did counseling with the children uh, for a few days and the, the, the overwhelming thing was having so much grief and trauma and uncertainty trapped in their physical bodies. They couldn't relax. Mm. They just physically couldn't relax. And emotionally, they were trying to hold it together because their parents, their one parent who's been released has been traumatized. The other parent's still missing. And uh, how dare I speak up about my pain when my mom is hurting mm. and trying to take care of us? Mm. And there's all the pr practical um, considerations like, well, what are we going to eat tomorrow? Or the the bills are due. Are we going to be evicted or are we going to be without power? You know, so it, it just is catastrophic. Um there's literally not uh, an area of life that's not affected. So I was working in partnership with Catholic priests down there because that's who, who's trusted. Um, mm. And, uh, and so that's where people turn for help. And, um, you know, even these children talking about how they were struggling with their faith and their identity uh, or feeling um, a sense of worth as a human uh, was just devastating that, yeah. you know, it, in, in their mind, the world not only doesn't care about them, the world despises them. Mm. And so when that's internalized by a child, that's another one of those, it, it's abuse. Uh, mm. So the child will carry that narrative for the rest of their lives in some way mm. that 
somehow they're inferior or not good enough or not wanted. And, um, it's, it's very tragic, you know, in sociology, there's this, uh, language about the, the nurturing system, which is your family and your community and the, the sustaining system, which is the larger society. And, uh, when, when the sustaining system doesn't want you and will harm you and your nurturing system has been completely devastated. Mm. Um, I mean, then like from the individual level to universal level, the, the child, uh, just is being completely obliterated, mm. um, emotionally and psychologically and spiritually. Mm. It's, 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 uh, there's really no language for how awful it is. It, mm. It's, uh, but, but there, there are spiritual consequences for sure, because I, mm. I sat in the room with many a child, um, you know, like a seven year old girl taking care of her autistic little brother because mom and dad were both locked up and mom got out, but she's busy trying to find out how to get dad out mm. things like that. You know, wow. it's just, um, just untold suffering. Um, so, I'm still in relationship with, with some folks down there and have been raising funds to take down to just give them like um, gift cards because, you know, taking handouts is so demoralizing and to have a little yeah. bit of autonomy just to be able to go to the store, sure, you know, and buy what sense. you need. Um, it, just it's a drop in the bucket, but it's, a, it's, it's something, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. You wrote a piece about your experience where you talked about Christians harming other Christians here. Yeah. 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 I mean, so each child that I spoke with, you know, I was speaking with them in a church and, uh, each one of them was a Christian, a belief in God. Uh, but it, they had a lot of theological questions, (laughs) you know, that they were struggling with. What does this mean? Um, you know, they were trying to process what they were going through, through their faith and they weren't coming up with much, you know, Mm as far as trying to find meaning and purpose that wasn't uh, somehow about um, they or their families being uh, unworthy because, you know, they they were constantly hearing their families referred to as criminals. I know, you know, CNN did the piece when I was there and looking at the comments section online at that piece, you know, it's just over and over. Well, it's too bad. These parents did this to these children, or this is what happens to criminals, you know, stop crying about it. And these children are reading that stuff, Mm. you know, and they're internalizing it and it's becoming part of their, their identity. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's extremely tragic and traumatic. Well, it's, um, it's a lot to think about, uh, but I think in terms, whether we think about policy or even just interpersonal relationships. Um, so much of where this whole conversation just leaves me with is just, man, like we're all kids out there, man. And we have to be so tender with each other. There's so much trauma and pain. And I think like the way that even the way that our labels, the kind of weight that they carry and the weight that names carry, that's just is enormous. Absolutely. And there's a, Man, there's so much, there's so much here to talk about. I guess I should not go down another trail, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I think, I think it plays into gun violence. I think when you mm. look at, uh, when you look at, uh, demographics, as far as, uh, a lot of most shooters, uh, in America right now are white males. And I think it, it gets into how white males are 
taught to deal with their own emotions or not deal with their own emotions mm. and compartmentalize. And I think most, uh, you know, most, uh, I, I don't mean to make a, a too broad a statement here, but most white people are not taught how to deal with pain and suffering and grief. We're really bad at doing funerals. We're like yes. die on yes. Friday, buried on Saturday, go back to work Monday, two weeks yeah. later, can't function. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and so, uh, I think, you know, uh, you know, I spent some time talking about some of this with Father Roar back in, in November, mm. you know, and he, he, he came back to one of his quotes you hear a lot, what we don't transform, we transmit. Yes. And so I think historically and currently we need to look at the healing of the white male psyche because it keeps transmitting what it fails to transform. Yes. And there's a lot there. Um, and so... Yeah, I mean, for the the ice raids in Mississippi, it's it's a particularly ugly narrative because, uh, you know, Native Native Americans there have been uh, separated, families separated uh, by white settlers, uh, black families, the slave trade there, and now Hispanic families. You know, so mm-hmm. the, literally the only demographic um, in Mississippi that hasn't faced uh, separation from family are white people. Mm. So, so there, there's so many layers there. Mm. Uh, and generational trauma is a huge thing that we don't even have time to get into today, but yeah. trauma that's passed along the generations through our socialization and just, you know, the field of epigenetics is letting us know more and more how we're literally altered physically by yeah. the traumas of previous generations. And, uh, it's, it's very much a real thing, but you know, the room I sat in with those children was at the foot of a cross that literally had a black Jesus hanging on it. Mm. And so it, you know, it was in, in the, the Catholic church there in, uh, in, in, uh, the town I was in, but it's, uh, if you look at the article I wrote for red letter Christian pictures, is the pictures along uh, but there's something particularly healing and particularly um, powerful about having those conversations with those children at the foot of a cross with a black Jesus crucified. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that's an image that we could really stand to carry with us as we seek to be more authentic and more vulnerable and live from a place of depth and soul uh, in a world that's not going to make that easy. And if you look at all the people we lift up, whether it's Jesus, Dr. King, Gandhi, uh, Mother Teresa, when you really get to know more about their stories, mm-hmm. they all suffered greatly. Yeah, uh, had, The conditions for happiness just weren't there. I mean, they had yeah. to access joy in the midst of struggle and pain mm-hmm. and suffering and trauma. Uh, and that's that's really the task of all of us. And so uh, we have, I think this is a good place to land. We, we mm-hmm. tend to not live in a deep soulful place because it, that contains everything that's deep and there's a lot of pain there. That's right. And so when we avoid our own pain and the pain of others, uh, you know, Brian Stevenson says one of the ways that trauma in, in regards to uh, race and racism and slavery, how that plays out in white people is avoidance. Yeah. You know, just let me just not even think about this or talk about this. Let this just make it go away. You know, this, yeah. this is in the past or something like that. And that's how the trauma plays out uh, because they're, you know, it'll get pathologized and called white guilt or something like that. It's mm-hmm. unhelpful. Uh, but really, I think it didn't do that. We'd have to look at um, 
white empathy and white compassion and white concern mm. and white brotherhood and all these things that when you take white off, it's just basic, our human capacities to be human. You know? Yes. Yes. And those, those very much get shut down in conversation. So yeah, there's so many conversations to be had there. Um, they t- tend to get politicized and mm. uh, sort of fall apart mm. and don't go deep because everything gets run through this shallow filter. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the other danger with that is everything, every, anytime an issue of justice gets politicized, the people who are suffering uh, get objectified. Yeah. And so we stop, you know, when people are saying, oh, well, these families shouldn't have done this to these children or whatever, everyone's objectified. Yeah. But there are no hypothetical people. These are real, right. living, breathing, suffering humans. Uh, so, yeah, I think I think the call is to radical self-care, radical mm. care of the other, radical care of each other, mm. especially radical care of anyone who's marginalized in any way. Yeah. And so so I think it's all all our suffering is always an invitation to live from a deeper place. Yes. Sometimes we can't process it as that because it's just too damn heavy and too damn dark, you know, mm-hmm. and that's when we that's but that's why if we're in a collective that's committed to living that way, we're less alone mm, when we, because yes. we all hit that place at some point. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Our suffering is always an invitation to live from a deeper place. That is absolutely all that Tony is. It is a beautiful place to land. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your stories and your own story with us. I thought this has been such a powerful time. You're definitely one of the folks I want to do this with on a regular basis. So I want to, to keep, this conversation going definitely looking forward to seeing you at evolving faith in a few weeks for sure. Yeah. But as I'm sure, um, this particular invitation and these conversations today have stirred up a lot of things in people and whether direction that you'd feel led, I'd love it if you just, um, since there is such a soulish component to all this, uh, if you just pray for us and now whatever direction you feel led as people are grappling with what their own suffering is inviting them into, right now what's breaking open maybe in this moment absolutely god i thank you for for being the ground of our being Uh, i thank you for being present in all suffering among all people at all times um god i ask that uh that when we call out for you to be present with us that that you help us to realize that you already are it's our awareness that's lacking um God, where, where pain is so great, I ask that you send us uh, partners on the journey that are worth, worthy of our most vulnerable uh, places and our, our deepest hurts. God, I ask that you free us up from any message we receive from the collective that there is a proper way to suffer or a proper way to grieve, that any feeling of doing it wrong is going to keep us from finding uh, a soulful rhythm that would help us uh, navigate this, God. And I, I just, you know, anyone who's out there hurting today, God, that that um, you just help them to trust their own deepest experience of you. There's so many messages that say, don't trust your deepest experience, because sometimes that is unwise. But our own deepest experience of you is, God, that's our birthright. We were born yes, with that, God, yes. that you help us to, uh, to reclaim that, that, um, there is some part of us that's been lost that needs to be reclaimed yeah. and that, you know, the part of us that's with you and belongs to you and we return to you that we know that place 
yeah. uh, here and now. Mm-hmm. Uh, God, I thank you for, for Jonathan and for, for the soulful friendship that we share and uh, mm-hmm. for how his work is impacting so many other people. And uh, uh, just thank you for all this. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, friend. This has been so good. And I'm sorry we went over time, but this has been awesome. Real quick, just as we go, I know we mentioned your website and where people can find you in terms of contact and the practice, social media and that kind of thing. What's the best way for people to stay in touch? Yeah, so you can find me. There's a lot of Tony Caldwells on Facebook, but just uh, I don't know how to tell you to find me, honestly. If I'm the one who's friends with Jonathan on Facebook. Okay, great. Fair enough. Yeah, That's yeah. easy enough. Yeah, yeah. So on Twitter... <laughs> On Twitter, I'm Tony underscore um, Caldwell underscore. And on Instagram, I'm just at Tony Caldwell. And uh, yeah, that's it. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, my friend. This has been amazing. So appreciate your time. I look forward to hanging out in a few weeks. Yeah, absolutely. And if you want to see more of my writings, I have a profile on the Red Letter Christian website as well so okay great great and i definitely there. want people to spend this yeah. last piece was devastating i want everybody to read that so that's awesome. that's super important but thank you my friend and thank you guys as always for listening to zeitcast i feel like today's episode was especially important so just know our prayers are with you and i hope you'll take what you heard i hope you will find somebody in your life that makes you feel safe and seen and known and loved and get in a room like this where you can where all of you can be present so thank you guys and we'll talk to you soon Take care.